Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Isaac, one of the hosts at In Doubt, as well as a pastor at North Valley Baptist Church in Mission, British Columbia. Well, on the show today, we have our friend Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada. Steve is follower of Jesus. He's a husband. He's a father. He's also the Alberta director of Apologetics Canada. So it's so good to have you back on the show again, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me back. Many of our listeners, in fact, if you have been listening to In Doubt for the last, let's say, probably month, a couple months, you've probably just heard a conversation I had with Steve already. But for those, Steve, who maybe are just jumping on for the first time, maybe they're interested in The Good Place and they saw this podcast about The Good Place and they just want to uh, jump it in. So yeah, just maybe fill us in a little bit more about who, who you are. Yeah, um, I am a husband and a father to two wonderful kids, six and four, Maya and Tavin. I used to live in the promised land called Abbotsford, BC, up until somewhat recently a couple of years ago we moved closer to family in the edmonton area so that's where i serve and that's why i am um partly why i am alberta director for apologetics canada Um, in my early 20s i had something of a faith crisis like my story with my faith it's not unique but it is um actually quite common right so i grew up in a christian home i inherited my faith but there came a time when I actually had to own it for myself. It had to become my faith at one point. And um, I had this whole thing where I walked away from the faith and then I came back, started studying apologetics and and then I just got hooked. And so what I saw in all of that was that I was experiencing a case of intellectual malnourishment when it came to my faith. And so when I look at apologetics, more than just making a case for the Christian worldview, and that is certainly that, but I also see it as this intellectual care for the soul. And so that's why I do what I do. As you might have kind of guessed from my last name, I am Korean. Uh, In fact, I come from an immigrant background. I was born and raised in South Korea, came over to Canada when I was about 14 years of age, Uh, been living here ever since. And so that's a little bit about who I am. Okay, that's awesome. Um, Two questions from that. Number one, if Abbotsford is the promised land, what is Edmonton? And second question um, is, is apologetics for everyone? Yeah. Okay. So as to your first question, if Abbotsford is the promised land, Edmonton, well, I was certainly in a state of shock when I first experienced my first minus 40 degree weather. And I told myself, surely this land is deserted by God, right? Um, But people live here, people make things work. Ironically, this kind of a harsh weather also makes, it kind of breeds a sense of community Uh, people look out for each other a little bit more because if you see a car kind of pulled over to the side of the road somebody's going to stop very soon to help you out because they know if this person doesn't get help likely this person's going to freeze to death so there there is a greater sense of kind of community i find here which i i enjoy um your second question was is apologetics for everyone is that correct yeah Um, My short answer is 100% yes. Every Christian is an apologist. In fact, everybody who believes in anything is, in a sense, an apologist because 
whether you're an atheist, a naturalist, or pantheist, you believe what you believe, hopefully for reasons. And I think as believers in Christ, we are actually commanded by Apostle Peter to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. That's really good, yeah. And hopefully, well, I shouldn't say hopefully, this conversation will um, help us all in our apologetics as well. So we'll, we'll jump in here. Um, today's conversation, it revolves around some themes that grow out of a Netflix series that's called The Good Place, or at least it's on Netflix. Now, if you're listening and if you hadn't had a chance to watch it, that's totally okay. We're only kind of using it as a, a launching pad, I guess you could say, to talk about the important and sometimes I would say even neglected topics of heaven and hell or the, the afterlife. So, Steve, I was, I was telling you earlier, my wife and I, we, we watched just the first episode so um, of uh, last night, okay, so in preparation for this uh, conversation. It's a very interesting, very intriguing show, but perhaps for those who are unfamiliar, even myself, I've only seen the first episode, which gives a lot, but could you just share with us just sort of the main, the basic premise of this show called The Good Place? Yeah, so uh, just for the sake of giving uh, our audience, our listeners, just a broad feel for it, uh, this one is produced by NBC. Um, and if you like the humor in a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, you will certainly love this. In fact, uh, one of the executive producers, Michael Schur, is the one who helped create uh, the Good Place. So it has very much of the same kind of humor, very witty, very quick. So it's just a delight to watch uh, for some good humor. Now, the basic premise of it is uh, the show starts off with this young woman by the name of Eleanor Shellstrop. She opens her eyes and she's in this place. She doesn't know where she is. Um, this guy, Michael, calls her into his office, and that's where she finds out that she's actually dead, and this is the afterlife. Uh, thankfully, Michael informs her that she's in the good place. What's interesting about this show is that they don't really use the terms heaven and hell. In fact, right at the beginning, they kind of go over that a little bit. And so they say, well, we don't really use those terms. It's not heaven and hell like we typically understand it, but, you know, this is the good place, and you're in the good place. You made it. But quickly, what you discover by the end of the first episode is that Eleanor Shellstrop is actually a very rotten specimen of a human being. She's just nasty. She's selfish. She has no morals whatsoever. Um, and now she has to kind of figure her way out. So she's trying to find ways not to be sent to... The bad place um, and then along the way she also discovers that there are a few others like her in the good place and together with these people they try to find ways to make things work and that's basically the premise of the show yes yes and uh i, yeah, I agree with you on just some of the points about its humor and everything too it has a very quick paced kind of fun feel but it raises these big these big themes obviously uh so i guess do you think that the show reflects the cultural understanding, uh, maybe I should say the North American cultural understanding, maybe uh, of heaven and hell. If yes or no, then what is the North American kind of cultural understanding of heaven and hell? Just kind of on the basic level. Yeah. Um, and I think that is sort of the basic understanding. What you see in the show is very close to our understanding of heaven and hell. And so 
Here, what you see is, well, let's put it this way. If you're like me, that kind of grew up in the church, me especially, I grew up in the Catholic church, so I encounter a lot of the, you know, medieval paintings of heaven and hell, all those kinds of things. And so, you know, I have these pictures of angels that are dressed in togas with, you know, feathered wings and with a halo above their heads or, or something like that, or... Uh, when it comes to hell, you, this is a place where these grotesque-looking monsters chew on people or red guys with horns with pitchforks, you know, jabbing at you or, or something like that, right? These are some of the images that I grew up with. And almost inevitably, when you talk to people who may not have a very good theological grasp in terms of the Christian understanding of heaven and hell, the idea is you do enough good and you'll get in there. Nobody's perfect, but you do enough good things, right? If you're a sort of a decent person, now I'm not sure how they, uh, what the standard is when they're measuring what counts as a decent person as opposed to a not so decent person, but you know, they, they have some kind of a vague standard and if you're decent enough, right? More decent than not, then you get into heaven. And that is sort of the picture that you get, although it's it's a bit different. Like in, in this show, the requirements for getting into the good place is actually a lot more strict. Like you have to be the, you know, cream of the crop to actually get, get in there. But that is sort of generally the idea. Do en enough good things and you'll make it into heaven or the good place. Um, yeah. yeah. So when we think about then the understanding of what heaven is so maybe people the cultural understanding is okay i got to be a good person uh and then i get to go to heaven or the good place what is there yeah and that's a very good question because what you see in the show is there are a lot of pleasant things um, you see gardens you see wonderful houses to live in people are nice you know it basically looks like the place that we live in but cleaner and you have all the conveniences that you would want. And then every now and then you get throw in some extra bonus things like, you know, you have days when you get to fly around for a bit or different things like that. Good food, good company, uh, very much sort of the earthly pleasures that perhaps you missed out on because you were busy being good sort of a thing, right? Um, me, certainly, uh, my understanding of heaven even though I knew this wasn't true, somehow got impacted by the uh, this cream cheese commercial where you have feathered angels sitting on clouds playing harps and eating cream cheese. And so, I, I mean, I know that's not the real picture of heaven, but somehow that, whenever somebody says the word heaven, that's the first thing that pops up in my mind, and I have to just kind of brush it aside. But that is our view of heaven. In fact, I have so many people, like even Christians, uh, that I talk to sometimes who are actually afraid of heaven because their view of heaven is this 24-7 non-stop worship service. And they're like, it's hard enough for me to sit through church for like an hour and a half on Sundays. Like, I don't want to do that forever, right? And th those kinds of things. And so, yeah, we, we do have some skewed views on, at least from the Christian perspective, that is not what heaven is supposed to be. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Before we we jump to sort of more the biblical understanding of uh, of heaven and and hell, and obviously, I mean, our conversation is going to be so short, so we're only getting a, a, a snippet here. Um, but I just I, I was interested. I know asking for percentages is always hard because we don't know everyone exactly everyone. But just from your standpoint, what do you think 
when it comes to people believing, Christians believing that if I'm a good person, then I will go to heaven. Just from your conversations, from the work that you do, is that a high percentage of Christians that kind of believe that? The short answer is yes. Um, and while I can't give you the exact sort of percentage, uh, in my experience, at least half the people that I talk to, right, at least half seem to have that kind of an understanding. If not, like, it, it's probably, in my experience, is closer to like three out of four people that I come across. Their understanding is that you just kind of go there if you're a good enough person. Um, and, and it depends on the, the context, too. Like, in, in certain church sort of settings, right? People, there are more people who are a little bit more theologically astute than that. So it differs from, from place to place. But I would say just overall, I would say at least half, if not three out of four people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's jump into heaven and hell in terms of the biblical standpoint of it, because I think, Steve, at least for myself, you know, it's kind of thrown around. Doesn't the Bible say that we're going to be walking on you know, uh, golden bricks and uh, you see the, all this stuff. So it can sort of lend its way into this idea of just like this really big, nice city that's going to be fun. You can kind of do whatever you want. There's no tears. It's like, oh, this is going to be the place. So I can understand how the good places depiction can be something that Christians can understand to be. So yeah, how does the Bible describe heaven though? What is the true description? In a short, obviously a shorter... In a short way. Um, yeah, as we get there, maybe it might help first to sort of explain why the Bible might have all these different imagery. So often the illustration that I use is, okay, let's say you developed a time machine and you go back to the times of, say, you know, early church fathers, right? And you're trying to explain to people what electricity is. <laughs> right? How are you going to do that? They, they have no concept of this. How are you going to explain it to them, right? You're going to have to explain it to them in terms that they understand. So for example, it'd be like, imagine if you could capture a little bit of the lightning in a bottle, right? In a little vessel, and you can somehow use that to keep your lamp going all night long. Like, wouldn't that be awesome, right? Those kinds of things. And so what I think is happening when we look at the Bible, like, you have the Son of God coming down to earth. Now, he's telling us about hell, um, heaven. Like, these are realities that we only have a, just the faintest glimpse of, you know? Like, but if Jesus were to explain it to us, how, how would he do that, right? Or how would John, with these images that he's seeing, like, he's seeing, let's say he's seeing heaven, like, how is he going to describe it to us? Those kinds of things. And so, when it comes to, let's talk about hell first, because maybe that's a little bit easier because our listeners might be surprised to know that more than anybody else in the Bible, Jesus talked about hell the most. And he, he described it in various ways and, and the other New Testament writers too, but Jesus described it as the, the place where a fire, like there's unquenchable fire and the worms do not die and you're getting eaten up. And then it is also described as a place of darkness. It is talked about in terms of exclusion. So you're excluded from the, this feast that's happening and there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, which by the way, uh, just as a quick side note, that gnashing of teeth, people often misunderstand that to be a sign of pain. In the ancient Hebrew culture, Jewish culture, gnashing of teeth is not a sign of pain. It is a sign of anger. 
In fact, we had that growing up in, in my country. When you grind your teeth, that is a sign of just seething anger. In fact, I did that once and my brother got really upset at me. He was like, don't do that. That is like, that is so vengeful of a thing to do. But anyway, that, that is the kind of the, the images that we see there. And then heaven is, of course, like we read more about that in the book of Revelation when everything is restored. Like we talk about the river of life. You know, there's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no more, but there's tree of life that you have access to. It also talks about how God dwells there. This is a new Jerusalem, right, that has come down from heaven and that's where we live. You know, streets of gold, those kinds of things that we're, as Christians, typically familiar with. So those are some of the images that are used. Um, of course, there is, if, once you start digging into the descriptions of heaven and hell, there is actually, there happen to be way more than that. Yeah, no, that's good. And I think, you know, uh, when you were sending over some of your notes to us, you, you wrote down that the key element is God's presence um, in heaven, which I think is so fascinating too, because and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you'll know this more than I do, but I've always thought that, just to jump into Islam for just one moment, that paradise, which is the Muslim's heaven, you could say, is not is not really a place where Allah is, but rather uh, just a place where he just gets to enjoy earthly delights, which almost makes more sense in terms of, that sounds like what the good place is kind of talking about more yeah. than the Christian world. Yeah, yeah in... in in Islam, uh, the idea of paradise includes, you know, your it's almost cliche, but you have 72 virgins, rivers of wine. It's described in those terms, although there are a, a couple of places where it talks about sort of the spiritual blessings of it all. But there is a tradition in Islam where there will be a day in heaven when everybody's assembled together and the most righteous of them all will sort of have the front row seat. And way over there, about a bow shot away, you see Allah pass by. And that's as close to God as you will get in Islam. It's That's how it was kind of explained to me. And yeah, so whereas the Christian understanding of heaven is all centered around the presence of God. And so it makes a lot more sense when you look at the whole picture of the Bible. I think as Christians, we often read bits and pieces of the Bible. Maybe we read the Gospel of John. Maybe we, we read sections of the book of James, and we don't read the Old Testament a whole lot, you know, those kinds of things. But when you actually put everything together, especially if you believe in the doctrine of inspiration and that there is one divine author behind all of this, then why is it that we don't look at the, the overall picture of it? So Typically, how I explain it is this. Let's start at the beginning of the book in the book of Genesis. So God creates the world and God creates humanity in a very special way so as to have this relationship with them, this spiritual relationship with them. And, and so Adam and Eve, you know, representative of humanity, like they are in the presence of God. This is very much heaven, right? Nobody's going to look at the Garden of Eden and go, well, that's not heaven, that's whatever. Like, I mean, that, that is a very much a paradise, very much a heavenly place. Now, things go wrong. Um, and so Adam and Eve rebel against God, and so they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Because, I mean, can you imagine the angels watching? Uh, so Adam and Eve just disobeyed God, and they took you know, this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now they are kind of in a place where they can basically determine what's right or wrong, 
right? And their nature is now corrupt. Now, if I were an angel standing there, I'd be like, God, you need to kill them and you need to kill them right now before they start spreading. And in the Bible, it says, you know, like if they, they can't take from the tree of life and eat it now, right? Because then basically what happens is we're stuck in our state of sin forever. So God, in an act of mercy, drives them out. Now, this is where human exile starts. And the entire Bible is a story of how God reached out to humanity to redeem them from their human exile. So then God comes to, right? Uh, is God selects a particular family. Let's start with Abraham. God chooses a family, creates a nation through which the Messiah comes. Now, think about this. What made the nation of Israel special? It is the presence of God. That's what made them special. In fact, you know, Moses, when he was talking to God, by this time they're out of Egypt, you know, but the people are complaining and they're rebelling against God again. And so God is like, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses is pleading with them, right? And he's like, you know what? We're not going to go anywhere unless you come with us. If you don't come with us, like what makes us any different from any other peoples on the planet, basically? And so it kind of goes on like that. And so then eventually they have the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple. They build this temple to God. God's presence dwells. And that's what makes God's people special is God being with them. And then because of continued disobedience, there's that very dramatic moment in the book of Ezekiel where God's presence actually departs. And then later, Jesus comes. Now, do you remember the name that Jesus was given? There, there was a different kind of a title. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means? God with us. God with us, right? So God's presence has come to us. Now, this is a big deal, right? And so Jesus comes, uh, fulfills the Old Testament. He, you know, he carries out his earthly ministry. He departs, and who comes? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of every one of us. And so then, now this, Paul says, is the down payment of what is to come, right? So in other words, God marks his people, the people that belong to him he marks them with his spirit and then at the end of days god's going to sift them all out right so these are the people that belong to me you come with me the rest of you you are now excluded from me you didn't want me you'll get what you want and so then uh you read in the book of revelation revelation 20 or 21 right where you see this picture everything is completed now right and this uh angel says now everything is done what does it say now, God's dwelling place is with people. They will be his people, and he will be their God. That is the completed picture. So we started in God's presence. We were in exile. We come back to God's presence, right? So that is the picture. Now, you look at all of this. So then what you get is this idea of heaven that is centered around we got to be with God. Now, if that is the core of heaven, guess what hell is? It is when you are excluded from God's presence. So that is, no matter what other imageries that you might see about hell, the core of it is now you are removed from God's presence forever. And so that, that is the core of the Christian understanding of heaven and hell. That's so good. The good place, it sort of talks about this, has this mathematical algorithm to, to see if people get in, right? All these points are put to a person if they've done something really well. If you save someone from getting hit by a car, you might get, you know, a thousand points or whatever. 
so if that's how <laughs> people from that show go to the good place, if that's not the same for us as Christians, how do we get into heaven thrown away? Now, this is where Christianity is radically different from other religions. So typically when people think about religions, they think they're, these are basically different ways of living out your lives ethically. So it's about being a good person. Um, I was invited to a, an apologetics conference in Winnipeg a few years ago in February of all times. Like It was brutal. One of the topics that I spoke on was, do all religions lead to God? Now, what the organizers hadn't told me was that they were going to have a multi-faith panel just before my session. So they sat down with a Sikh, a Jew, a Buddhist, a secular humanist, and a Muslim, and just kind of talked about religion in general and their religion specifically. And what I found fascinating was that every single one, including the secular humanist, was talking about being a good person. The Sikh gentleman said, if you're our first and foremost a good person, you're going to be a good Sikh, you're going to be a good Buddhist, you're going to be a good Jew, good Christian, whatever, right? And it just kind of went on like that. It was all about being a good person. I was like, well, that sets me up perfectly because what Christianity <laughs> tells us is you can't get there by doing good works. So to the question, do all religions lead to God? What Christianity says is no, no religion leads to God. God came to us and he did the work for us that we couldn't do. So think about it this way. If you break the law, any law, you can't actually make up for it by doing other good works. So imagine you get pulled over by a police officer for speeding. So he says, license and registration, please. And you say, oh, but, 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 but officer, you don't understand how these things work. You know, you see, I help old ladies cross the road. I help out at the soup kitchen every week, so on and so forth. What's the officer going to say? Okay, license and registration, please, right? Because if you break the law, other good things that you do, they're irrelevant. You have to pay the penalty. But this is the problem. We, we can't pay that penalty because uh, the penalty for high treason against the divine, against God, is death. Um, so either we pay the penalty and we all die and receive the death sentence that we're supposed to receive, or we need grace and mercy. And, and that's where Jesus steps in and he pays the penalty. In, in other words, the way to heaven is not us doing good works. Whereas other religions, I love the way Frank Turek puts this, whereas other religions say, do, 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 what Christianity says is done. The work has been done for you. You trust in what Jesus has done. Now, that should lead to, in, in grateful response to what Jesus has done, it should lead to ethical lives, good lives. But that is not to earn the right to live in the good place. Yes, yes. And that's so good because if you think about the good place, the first episode you're met with the main character who is not the best kind of person, did not live a very good life. And right away when she's in the good place, she meets up with this other gentleman who is a very good, he was a uh, philosopher of morality and ethics and very good. But in, in what you're saying, if she, right before she died, confessed Jesus as her savior, even after living a life of heinous sins, she would be in the presence of God. Whereas this other gentleman who did all these good things, but rejected Jesus, he, he wouldn't, which is sort of the irony in it all. Yeah. Um, and that is sort of, some people think it's very unfair 
Right. Because again, you think, well, how is it that this rotten specimen of a human being, just because she confesses with her lips, Jesus is Lord, all of a sudden she's in heaven. Uh, that's not exactly, that's too simplistic of a way to look at it. Obviously, you need genuine contrition and remorse for everything and, and whatnot. And of course, God being just, when somebody is remorseful like that, and he is merciful, right, then he'll extend that mercy. Uh, not at the cost of justice, because he, Jesus paid the full price already. So justice, the requirements of justice is already met. Uh, and, and so we can receive that mercy without compromising God's justice. And here's the crazy part. Now, think about what justice is. Just, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. But then God goes one step farther and he actually shows us grace. Now, this is the crazy picture of heaven in Christianity is that God not only forgives us our debts, he adopts us into his household, the household that bears his name. And scripture tells us that we are actually co-inheritors of his kingdom with Christ. I'm like, what? I mean, I, I, was, I was a rebel who committed high treason and God extends clemency. And then it says, you know what? I'm going to one up myself here. <laughs> you are now part of my family, part of my household. You're going to be a coal inheritor of the kingdom with Christ. And you are, as Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy, we are going to reign with him. We're going to rule with him in heaven. <laughs> right. This is where my mind goes absolutely berserk. This is the picture of heaven. This is far from just the sort of dreary 24-7 nonstop worship service kind of a picture that we sometimes have. And I mean, yes, we will praise God, but it's going to come out of it's not gonna it's not gonna be anything that we will dread. Like it's going to be a colorful place. It's going to be a wonderful place of diversity and 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 it's just and we're gonna have meaningful work to do. It is just more than more than just being a good place it's going to be a place where love is perfected between humanity and god and between me and my neighbors and that's that's what we are destined for as christians that's so good praise god for that so good we're basically out of time here steve but let me just ask one last question how can a biblical understanding of heaven and hell impact self-professing christians today in their everyday life let me just say this to start with what's wonderful about grace is that because you are not earning salvation you're not earning your place in the good place or heaven when you help somebody else you can actually do that without any strings attached because you are already receiving the greatest gift of all you can share that with somebody else without any strings attached because if you think about it in other religions when you help other people in a sense it's for yourself right because it, it's going to be a benefit to you but under this doctrine of grace you can't earn it so you can actually do this just out of the goodness of your heart without any strings attached so that is wonderful news and that should also motivate us to share the gospel with others more readily because i don't get anything out of it but you're going to get everything out of this now, when we want to talk about the gospel, I mean, it's not like back in the 60s where you can just open up the Bible and start going through it 
right? And it's going to mean something to people. We're, we're kind of, we live in this kind of post-Christian secular kind of a world. Often we don't have the same common ground to start with. But uh, one good way to start these kinds of conversations, try this sometime with a friend that you have who doesn't believe in Jesus. Just ask them, what do you think is going to happen after we die? This is a fantastic question because it is diagnostic. It As your friend tells you, what he or she thinks is going to happen in the afterlife, you can sort of figure out where that person stands, right? So, and then you can take the conversation on from there. And often, like, you can also ask another question, like, what do you, what do you know about the Christian understanding of heaven and hell, right? Now, if you understand the Christian understanding of heaven and hell, what a wonderful way to break out the gospel message, right? Like this is not a place that we earn. Like we already have a place. God prepared a place for us. All we need to do is come to him now and receive the gift of salvation that he has offered us for free. And it's way more than just clemency. It's grace. He's going to adopt us into his family and we're going to reign with Christ. Now that's some crazy good news to share. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so good. Yeah. Steve, thank you so much for chatting with us again. And we look forward to having you back on again soon because with whatever topic, because I'm sure we'll have a, a fun talking about any topic that we think about. So yeah, thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's always a blast to be with you. So thanks. Hey, thanks for joining us today. And a special thanks to Steve Kim for being here with us. You can follow the ministry Steve plays a part in, Apologetics Canada, by heading to apologeticscanada.com. Also, Steve has written an article for us that is on the same topic as our conversation, and he's called it Harps and Pitchforks. You can head to our website to find it and read it. Finally, next week, Daniel will be talking with Aaron Ford on abuse and forgiveness. See you then. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hi, Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You may not be aware, but Indoubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Our effort is to effectively reach out to young people, engaging them in the Bible as it speaks into the real issues of life, faith, and culture. I also wanted to mention that on Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific, Back to the Bible Canada, including InDoubt, will be hosting a live video event called The Gathering, featuring Dr. John Newfeld and Phil Calloway and musical artists Brian Dirksen, Stephanie Redekop, and Shane and Angela Wee. We're hoping you'll join us. Check it out on the InDoubt Facebook page, or for more information, visit indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S.